Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Hi everyone, welcome to Soccer Made in Portland. Um, I'm here with Richard Farley at Providence Park. We're probably going to just be so sweaty by the end of this uh, we're not going to even want to we're going to have to get far away from each other and maybe like go shower or something but uh, we're going to power through to record the podcast so for people who don't know we are in one of the booths above providence park and it's getting to be the time of day when the sunlight is going to start reflecting off of the buildings in the distance right <laughs> into this booth and we have an air conditioner on, but it just doesn't seem to be working as well as it should be. But hey, I'm, I'm glad to be doing this podcast again with you, Jamie. What do we got going on this week? Yeah, a lot of stuff to talk about. A lot. Oh, God, there was the so much last end. week. Um, Thorns, not as much. There was only one game, and they're obviously on the bye a week this weekend. Um, but we'll definitely hit some Thorns stuff as well. But yeah, let's just get right into the Timber stuff, because they're... There was a lot that happened last week. Yeah, I almost forgot about how much happened on Wednesday during this game. But for people who forgot the score, because it seemed like the score ended up taking a backseat to a couple other things in this game. Uh, LAFC, 3-2 to two winners in the quarterfinal of the Open Cup. Uh, Jamie, you actually <laughs> predicted a one to nothing victory for yeah. the Timbers. I don't think that was an unreasonable prediction. I think that we just didn't think that... LAFC was going to, one, roll most of their team over and play their first team, and two, basically roll out their reserves on Sunday in Minnesota and get smashed 5-1 to one by Minnesota. They put all their eggs in the U.S. Open Cup basket. The Timbers actually started six, six. players. I yeah. think Timbers started six from Sunday, and uh, LAFC, I believe, started eight from Sunday. So both teams play pretty strong teams. LAFC, 3-2 to two winners. Like I said, you had predicted a one to nothing victory. I don't know. I th- I'm trying to come up with some argument to give you some points here. I think I'm going to have to give you a zero, though. Yeah, I think I think I got this one wrong. That's okay. I'm going to give myself a zero, too, because my side bet was that the Timbers would have more shots than <laughs> LAFC. I was clearly betting that Bob Bradley would rotate his team more than he did. They didn't come close. Timbers were outshot 22-12 to 12 in that game. Uh, so both of us get zero points for this one, but let's go to the actual game. We talked about the lineups. What did you think when you saw... LAFC starting lineup because the Timbers lineup wasn't it was a little bit of a surprise how many starters they rolled over LAFC I I was kind of shocked yeah I I didn't expect either team to roll over as many starters as uh, they did we we saw some other players that that didn't end up seeing playing time 
um, that I down in LA that I sort of expected were going to be in that lineup. Um, the Timbers obviously went with a fairly strong lineup. LAFC, like I said, eight starters from Sunday. I think it's really tough when, when you get to the point where LAFC is rolling over that many starters. You, even with the Timbers playing a strong lineup, they're playing in L.A. for the second time in, in four days, and they're playing against an LAFC team that's been very good at home. So I, I think the Timbers, it was going to be tough for the Timbers to take what they did Sunday in that scoreless draw and do the same thing in the U.S. Open Cup when the lineups on, on both sides were fairly similar. I completely agree with you. Winning at LAFC was going to be difficult no matter what. We saw that on the preceding Sunday where I thought the Timbers played a pretty good game, but it ended up still being a 0-0 draw. They lose 3-2 on the road at one of the best teams in MLS. They'd been on the road for four straight days at that point anyway. I don't see this as a bad result. It's just kind of a result that happens. I'm not too worried about it or anything. The one question that I heard a couple of people asking and I added to our sheet of notes here do we think this just came down to LAFC taking the game more seriously than the Timbers? I don't know if it was that LAFC took the game more seriously. I think the Timbers were trying to navigate the three games in seven days in in, in a situation where they would be able to play a good lineup in all three games. They weren't going to throw one game away that maybe LAFC was. Um, but I also think the Timbers had a little bit of a problem with some starters just probably not being able to go Wednesday. I mean, I don't think that Diego Valeri at, at the age he is and the point he is in his career is going to play Sunday, Wednesday very often, uh, unless it's um, in the playoffs and, and they really need him or something like that. I, I don't think that you're going to have Valeri playing in that sort of compacted schedule. I'm not surprised not to see Mabiala in that. There are obviously uh, international players factored into some decisions as well, which we'll get to in a minute, at least on the Timbers side. Um, but to have some of these older players, um, the Timbers, I think, were just in a situation where they needed to give these guys a rest. And it turned out to be, at least you know, in the case of maybe Mobile Valeri, two of their best players. I think it was completely understandable how the Timbers approached it. I think we have a lot of times during these Open Cup discussions thrown around the word seriously – And maybe used it a little bit out of context or it carries more power than it should. I think the Timbers approached it seriously, just not single-mindedly. And I don't think any team should really approach these games single-mindedly. Maybe LAFC, because they didn't have to travel for these games, were at home, felt like they could roll over their team a little bit more between Sunday's game and Wednesday's game. The Timbers, maybe, for the situations you described, the fact that they've been away from home, felt like they needed to make a couple more changes. I don't think we can necessarily say that Bob Bradley took things more seriously than Giovanni Savarese. I think it's just a different set of circumstances, and the risks that Giovanni Savarese were, was willing to endure made more sense than the risks Bob Bradley was willing to endure. Now, coming out of this game, I think very few people are going to be focusing on this result. I think they're going to be focusing on the two controversies that were born out of that game. Let's Let's start with a nice one the whole one that doesn't uh, get ugly really quick and that's the Timbers uh, filing a protest with U.S. soccer over LAFC's use of too many foreign players now for people who don't know there is a limit of five foreign is a weird word here because green card holders don't count as foreign players basically people who are according to U.S. law allowed to work domestically which includes green card holders citizens they don't count as foreign players in this competition. Other players do. It all The confusion centered around one player, Mark Anthony K, for LAFC, who 
ultimately U.S. Soccer told LAFC was a domestic player when it turned out he doesn't hold a green card. So ultimately, uh, U.S. Soccer screwed up, allowed LAFC to play with six international players, and uh, eventually the Timbers withdrew their protest because what are you going to do? Blame LAFC because U.S. Soccer screwed up? Now, with that exposition out there, from your point of view, how do you... How did you react as this was going down, and how do you think, well, how do you feel about the ultimate resolution? I don't think the Timbers should have withdrawn their protest. I, I, I think that, I was going to make this my hot take, but I figured we'd address it here, but I, I think that the Timbers were in the right, they followed the rules, and they deserve to have some sort of explanation from U.S. soccer, which wasn't just the Timbers have graciously decided or gracefully, I don't know which one of those two words they use, I decided to withdraw the protest. I think U.S. soccer needed to respond and need to make some decisions around this, even though it was their fault. But what if they did respond and just say, we screwed up? I mean, I think ultimately that would be a better answer than what they, they were essentially allowed, they were off, essentially allowed to get off the hook because of the Timbers withdrawing the protest. And LAFC approached it like that, saying we've always followed the rules in yeah. their own statement. U.S. Soccer sort of approached it like that with their own statement. And I think U.S. Soccer should have had to make a tough decision here. Maybe they do give LAFC some sort of small fine or something. Or um, if they determine that it was completely U.S. Soccer's fault and they really feel like they can't do that, they at least have to apologize and explain what type of rules they're going to lay out in the future to make sure this doesn't happen. And, and there has to be some sort of accountability there. And I, I think the Timbers, by withdrawing the pro, uh, protest, kind of allowed LAFC or not uh, U.S. Soccer to sort of not have that accountability. So yeah. I, I think they should have just stuck with it. I do think, and we'll get to in a moment, um, in the context of the other part of the controversy coming out of uh, Wednesday's game, I think I can see why the Timbers might have said, there's, there's a lot going on here. Let's just put this protest aside. Uh, okay, so for people who don't know, the other controversy coming out of Wednesday's game was sparked by, I don't want to say it was sparked by Adama Diamande, a striker for LAFC, but he brought it to light on his Instagram account, uh, an accusation of racial abuse against an unidentified Timbers player that Diamande had been called the N-word during the game. Uh, Diamande is black. He's from Norway. Uh, he made this accusation on his Instagram account, went back to his Instagram account later and said that it was, in fact, a player for the Timbers that uh, he had reported. So that investigation has been ongoing. Uh, we don't know the answer to that yet. I think that it's very difficult to speculate speculate much on that, except for the to know that uh, the Timbers and U.S. Soccer and LAFC are all taking this very seriously, and hopefully we'll have some resolution to that soon. But you're basically saying that these two controversies happening at the same time, from your point of view, may have affected how much the Timbers were willing to pursue a resolution on the foreign player rule. I, I feel like, yeah, I, I think just um, thinking about it from their perspective, I, I would think that that would impact it because when you're also dealing with a racial controversy that seems like it's way more important in the context of things sure. to also have this side thing going on with the protest. Um, it, it just might not have been something the club wanted to pursue. Now, they haven't been told that, but I just think, I, I feel like that's something just thinking from the perspective of the club that it, it has sort of occurred to me. I think from what I, I really wish I would have asked more questions on Friday and going forward after that about the 
the protests regarding the foreign player rule. That everybody came back from LA and was here on Thursday. I talked to a lot of people on Thursday and Friday, and I think the general feeling was that it didn't really make sense to try to punish LAFC for this when it was very clearly U.S. Soccer's error. U.S. Soccer had been asked about the status of Mark Anthony Kay. They relayed to LAFC that he qualified as a domestic player. LAFC acted accordingly. So when you're pursuing potential action, or you're not even pursuing potential action, you're asking what went wrong, and somebody tells you it's the Federation screwed up and tell LAFC that they could play with this player, like what do you do at that point? You can say, okay, well, we're entitled to like a replay or something. Like We shouldn't be out of the competition. But I think there was also the general feeling that that wasn't the reason why the Timbers lost on Wednesday. And so just kind of have to say, can you guys just make sure this doesn't happen again? It, it really sucks when you say it out loud, but they were in a situation where I think they felt like there wasn't really anything that was truly fair that could have been done because essentially if you keep pursuing something, you're asking LAFC to be punished for something that wasn't their fault. Now, regarding the, the racial abuse allegations... I mean, I'm in no position to comment on this. this um, you know, the club that I work for is part of an investigation that's ongoing. So I'll just throw it to you. What was your reaction when you saw Diamande had made these allegations? And what are your impressions now, six days afterward, where we're kind of still wondering what's going on? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously it was a surprise to see those allegations thrown out. I, there's never been um, any sort of allegation like this as long as I've been covering the team that's come out. It's not been, obviously, some sort of uh, consistent problem in the past or anything. Um, at the same time, if he, the allegations are out there, I, I really do hope this isn't being investigated seriously. And I expect there to be a resolution. And uh, from my perspective, I'm going to continue asking Savaresi and the club what the resolution is for this until that happens, because ultimately I don't want this to be something that comes to resolution behind the scenes and is not made public. I I definitely, which I think the club ultimately has indicated that there will most like should be a a public resolution. But I, I do think this is something that fans need to know ultimately what occurred what the investigation has found. And if uh, it's found out that this was correct, I mean, there has to be a serious consequences for whatever player did this because th- this, needs to, this needs to be taken seriously. It's not something where you, the player can just apologize and play the next game. I, there ha- would have to be some sort of suspension at, at the minimum. Um, and it would have to be taken seriously. On the other hand, if this a- ends up being an allegation that can't be proven or is actually actively disproven by other people on the field, what they say, this is a situation where... Thankfully, the Timbers player hasn't gone named yet because this obviously just by the way you were talking, this is something that carries a lot of weight. It should carry a lot of weight. But also once the allegations are out there, it's hard to get the stain fully removed. So it'll be interesting to see how things transpire in the next week. Hopefully we'll have some resolution to this. Hopefully we can talk about this. But I think that one of the things that has come to mind for me as this has gone on is that it is very easy for us to start going down these roads and we've seen it on twitter as people have tried to make their investigations as to which timbers player this was very easy to go down these roads with a lot of misconceptions and a lot of false assumptions and pretty soon people's reputations get smashed or besmirched without without enough evidence to support that so hopefully like you said in the next week we'll get some evidence to push us in one way or another All right, uh, no segue away from that. Let's start talking about Saturday's action, Timbers versus Montreal at Providence Park. Jamie, you predicted this would be a 2-1 to victory for the Timbers. 
in one respect, you were very close. The actual final score was two to two. Um, in another respect, the Timbers never led in the game, yeah. and I think we probably thought that this was going to be a even difficult might be an exaggeration. I think maybe we thought this was going to be in a strong challenge for Montreal, but a controlled performance from the Timbers and was anything but that. Yeah, I think that in both of both of us last week, we're sort of going at the week in the sense that the Timbers were going to rotate more on Wednesday, and therefore they were going to have more fresh legs on Saturday um, and the starting lineup they wanted to go with on Saturday. So I think it, in terms of our predictions, that was the thought in mind. And the fact that that didn't happen uh, probably changed the outcome of both games. Yeah, it probably shines some light on how much of an expert we actually are. Right? <laughs> uh, so 2-1 to one was your prediction. I'm going to give you 2.8 points. You were very close on the number of goals. You got one team's goal total right. I think probably in terms of the spirit of the game, you're pretty off. But at the same time, the bottom line is what it is. So I think you definitely deserve some points. Um, I said that the impact would score the first goal of the game. I actually got that one right. I love looking at the look on your face because you're half scared of how many points I'm going to give myself for this. I don't think this was such an amazing side bet. Look, if there's going to be a goal in the game, it's not exactly 50-50 which team is going to score first. I think... On Saturday, between the home team's advantage in games and the Timbers just playing better, you can say it was highly likely the Timbers were going to score first. And the Timbers had only conceded first in their unbeaten streak once. Thank you very much. That's Not not to help you out, anyway. (laughs) But I don't think this is such a miraculous prediction. I'm going to give myself 13.7 points. Um, I actually think this is a more difficult prediction, um, an easier prediction to make than the Kristen Press one that you didn't like, <laughs> which is why I'm giving myself fewer points, but it's not so miraculous. Now, going into this game, uh, going into the breakdown of this game, first half, we saw Montreal score a couple of goals that we just generally don't see the Timbers giving up. Uh, Giovanni Savarese said almost those exact words after the game. Let's talk about those goals. The first goal, Alejandro Silva beats two Timbers defenders, pretty much pushing right through Julio Cascante leaving Lawrence Olam kind of crossed over at the edge of the penalty box, cutting back for um, Safford Tider to score from the middle of the box. I thought, one, it was kind of a surprise goal because we've never seen the Timbers give up a goal like that this year. And then, two, that it really just showed that the Timbers maybe weren't there for the first half hour of this game. Yeah, I I mean, I I just think... and. and I guess this will speak a little bit more to the second goal as well, but I think the organization wasn't there. And the individual performances just weren't at the level we've become used to seeing. I I think the Timbers have been so good in this unbeaten run because they've become this uh, very good defensive team. They stay compact. They're good individually. They're good in 1v1 situations. um, And and they're organized. uh, And that just didn't happen in the Really, I mean, I think the second goal came in the 40-something minutes. So really, throughout the first half, um, the defense just wasn't what we've grown to expect from them. Yeah, the the Timbers equalized by Evan Bush making an error. Samuel Armenteros is there, blasted into net, 1-1. But in the 41st minute, like you allude, uh, Ignacio Piatti just plays a long ball over the defense. Mateo Mancuso beats Julio Cascante, beats Zarek Valentin, beats... Jeff Antonella ultimately with his shot and just a route one goal that we just haven't seen them giving up all year. The one thing that comes to mind for me here, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but the one player that played a full 90 minutes in each of the games in LA was Julio Cascante. And the one player that was involved on both of the goals on Saturday was Julio Cascante. Do we think that matters at all? 
I think the compacted schedule definitely matters. I, I think the Timbers were not, I mean, it wasn't fresh legs. There was definitely some element of them being tired coming into this game. And, and I think that's fair. I, I think when you're evaluating this game, it would be unfair not to acknowledge that. Um, at the same time, I, I, I just think that, I mean, in some of these situations, I mean, even if Cascante is tired or something, I, I, it doesn't necessarily mean automatically. I don't want to let him off the hook or any of the defenders off the hook for that sort of performance in the first half. They weren't good enough. And, and especially, I thought, in the second goal, that was a great pass from Piatti, but the, they were slow. The, the, they were slow to move the lines. They, I think Sebastian Blanco said after the game that it was a lazy performance in the mm-hmm. first half, and I, I think it, pro- it was. Um, and we haven't seen that. Yeah, I thought Seba was being harsh, mostly because <laughs> I can't tell when people are being lazy. I think it, I think it was a tired performance, but yeah. the, the fact that I think both um, Seba and Gio point to them being slow is yeah. kind of where you get this lazy idea. I, I mean, they were slow, and along with being disorganized, and especially on that second goal, the way this defense sort of responded um, was really problematic if that was a trend that we were seeing. No, I think it's not yeah, a trend. <laughs> no. I think there's definitely a mental fatigue that goes into not only the week that the Timbers had last week, but when your preparation gets screwed up. Because when your preparation gets screwed up and you don't have time to implement your tactics to the degree that you normally do, and you don't have time to build the confidence and the, the patterns that you're going to try to exploit, the rotations defensively or in the passing game that you have, you sometimes end up standing around and waiting for the game to happen and just kind of thinking to yourself, we're used to this by now. We're the Timbers. We win these games. Things just happen. You just don't have the confidence in your scheme that you do when you have a full week's preparation. And I think one thing that we've seen throughout the Giovanni Savarese era, era is that that scheme matters a lot on a week-to-week basis. The little tweaks that he's implementing, be it in the formation, how they're defending, or how they're coming out of defense into attack, those things matter a lot. So when you only have one practice in between your Wednesday game in L.A. and then your Saturday game here to prepare for your next opponent, particularly an opponent that defensively is pretty good, pretty organized, uh, they showed some interesting ideas tactically Saturday that I thought worked really well, I think that really hurts. And it makes me wonder whether when you and I are talking like this or you and I are writing our articles, if we don't pay enough attention to how many days practice goes into a game. Because that should have been something I think you and I talked about last week. We, sh- we would have been able to figure out that they were only going to have Friday to prepare for Montreal. That's a big thing. So I think that came out on Saturday. And to the extent that I think Portland is a better team than the Impact, I think that totally got truncated by the fact that their routines were totally screwed up. I think um, we've sort of touched on it, but Michael asks, at what point is extending the NBA streak? Obviously, the Timbers extend their NBA streak streak to 13 games by coming back and, and drawing Montreal, uh, just a shield to hide behind when the Timbers drop points. And for me, I, I, I didn't feel very positive coming out of this game in terms of the Timbers' performance. Yes, they extended the unbeaten streak, but I, I didn't necessarily even feel like that was a shield behind, to hide behind. I, I think that was just a factual uh, number, and they came back and are able to do that and get a point. But yeah, this was a disappointing result for the Timbers at home. It was a very disappointing first half performance. Had they played like they did in the second half, they probably would have won the game. Uh, but I don't think overall in the Sunbeam streak, you can really say that they're hiding behind a beaten streak because they've posted a lot of wins and, and had some really good performances and really proved themselves against the best teams in the league. So um, 
I guess, what's your perspective? But I think that the Timbers have overall um, proven themselves as a very strong team during this unbeaten streak. And that doesn't change the fact that this was a disappointing performance against Montreal. I think you kind of put it best. It's just a matter of a fact thing. Like, they are unbeaten in 13 in MLS play. Now, whether people want to read into that, that that fact is being trumpeted or just stated as a matter of fact, maybe that's something people like me can work on a little bit. But in writing up my piece after Saturday's game, it wasn't like, all right, it's at 13 now. It's like, the winning streak is at 13, but I think people wanted different things out of this game. And ultimately, what I ended up focusing on was the fact that you know, for the first time this year, the Timbers were put in a situation where they really had to respond to something. I mean, they were put in that situation against L.A. also in the MLS game here where Chris Pontius scored in the 30th minute to put them down. But they responded by the, before the hour mark, and it just felt different. The fact that Montreal did it twice and kind of really punched them in the mouth. I felt that there was some almost a silver lining to the way that the team responded and the way the team really controlled the last half hour of the game. Now, of course, the result isn't great. But I think there was actually a bit of progress made in that game because for weeks now, you and I have been sitting here kind of going, you know, the Timbers, particularly after the San Jose game, just didn't seem like they were comfortable being like the alpha in this game. I thought they were comfortable being the alpha over the last half hour. Now, obviously, that didn't translate into a result. But ultimately, I think that when we say 13 unbeaten, like, we end up, those things end up being kind of like pushed into the background amid stuff like they did look like the... They did look like they could be an alpha for 30 minutes. They did have to respond to two challenges that they haven't before. I don't know. Maybe maybe you and I can do a better job of putting like the 13 or the unbeaten run thing into context. But I think I would also throw it back on readers and listeners a little bit that just because we're saying it doesn't mean we're trumpeting it. Yeah, and I, I think that I agree with you that they... The second half response was something that was impressive to see because we haven't had to see it very much this year. Um, And especially early in the season, I I mean, we go way back to that New York, uh, New York game at the beginning of the year that it's obviously the Timbers worst performance of the year. And that was a big thing coming out of the game, their response, how they just gave up um, and ended up losing for nothing. To see a team that's grown so much mentally, um, obviously we know that they've grown a lot mentally. They're a much different team now. But to see them be at the point that despite the compacted schedule, uh, despite having a bad first half, they are able to go into the locker room and find a way to adjust and be the dominant team in the second half was good to see. Um, and, yeah, I think there's the positives you take away are come from the second half in that response. Um, and then obviously you take away the negatives and that's why we ended up with a draw with the the performance not being up to what we've grown to expect from the Timbers in the first half. And also, I think we saw on Saturday, Montreal's not a bad team. Uh, let's talk about the Chara streak. It's at 18 games in MLS play, 19 games overall. Uh, what's going on? Oh, it might be. I'm just not sure. I was thinking back if it was 19 games overall or in MLS. Play. Yeah, so we did a couple. I did some double checking on this yesterday because I had to write an article about it. So they are 0, 10, and 8 in their last 18 games without Diego Chara at MLS play, a streak dating back to July of 2015. Other people can go check that. They should know my record on these type of things with this podcast. The 19th game is the double post game. So that's obviously wasn't a win or a loss in that one. It was ended up being officially a draw. But let's go ahead and just jump to the question here because I think Justin gets right to the point of this. Can the Tippers figure out a viable option when the current player – with the current players for when Chara misses another game this season? I I felt, I guess, I more confident coming out of the Sporting Kansas City game because with the four three two one, 
formation that they used. And, and I, I want to say it was Paredes, um, Polo, and Flores in the midfield at that, in that game, um, although that's thinking a little bit far back. Um, I, I felt like they didn't have a lot of problems in the midfield in that scoring Kansas City game. And, and even though it ended up being a scoreless draw, I didn't feel like Char was missed all that much. Yeah, I felt very differently in the Montreal game. But I don't know if that comes down to there being just problems all across the pitch and the Timbers having issues in the midfield because almost every player out there was having a bad first half um, or if it really spoke came down more to the system. I think the Timbers showed that they can manage without Chara and they could potentially even get a win in that scoring Kansas City game. Um, But that's maybe the only time we've really seen that. And so I still think the Timbers have a lot to prove um, with the personnel they have that they can deal with an absence to Chara. I think they have especially when they're playing with three central midfielders, they have a system and, and tactics that make sense and enough talent to find a way to, to mask Chara's absence. Um, but clearly, it, you know, they haven't been able to find that win yet. Yeah, I just think that this is anomalous. You can't tell me that the Timbers go from, throughout their seven-plus year history, a slightly above 500 team to a team that becomes the worst team that has ever played in Major League Soccer history because of one player. I think this is just basically bad luck, coin flips going the wrong way. Um, like it, It's a 300-hitter going hitless in five games, basically. Uh, does that mean that that hitter is bad? No. Does that mean that there's a inherent cause behind this? Potentially. Maybe the guy is sleeping on the wrong shoulder or something like that. But I'm not seeing when I watch these games, and I hadn't seen it before in in the early days of the streak when we didn't even know it was a streak i hadn't seen a team that was just so drastically different clearly the team is not as good without one of their three or four best players clearly but unless you're telling me that diego chara has some kind of outstretched effect that we have never seen when some of the best players in this sport have been absent from their teams unless you can convince me of that i'm more convinced that this streak is just randomness anomalous and bound to change at any moment I don't think, I mean, I think we have a slightly different take on that because I don't think it's just random. I think Chara, I think they do struggle to control the midfield um, when Chara's not in there. And I think that's contributed to the streak. At the same time, I've seen them put in good enough performances to get another result. So maybe in some of those performances, yeah, it's been random uh, bad luck that the streaks continue, that they haven't been able to break it. But there is a a clear difference for me when Chara's in the lineup and and Chara's not. And that has come. I mean, it's, I think it's also a negative 21 goal differential during that this streak. Not this year, because both of the absences have, um, at least the last two absences, have been draws. Um, but I, I think it does make a, a significant difference. It's yeah, just I mean, that. Yeah, nobody is saying it doesn't make a significant I, difference. I just don't see it as, I, I don't see it as random bad luck. I think there's a reason why we're at this streak level. So you, so you think the Timbers are legitimately a team that can't win in 19 games? Well, well okay. I mean, clearly I they guess are. I'm saying, I, mean, saying I, I guess I'm saying that, yes, maybe you're one saying that or reflects two their or talent three, level. maybe five of those games or something they could have won. Um, but I, I, or maybe even more. But I think the significant number of those games, Char not being in there was the difference. So not saying that there isn't an element of luck, but I don't want to overplay um, the, uh, uh, how much luck is playing to this because I think in a significant number of those games, the key difference has been the Char hasn't been in there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's an obvious way to look at it because Chara is gone. But look, on a, in a soccer game, there are 8 to 10 things that happen in any game that you can say is the difference. I mean, that's the nature of the sport. 
Um, I think it's obvious that we should look at Shaw, but this 0-10-8 mark for a team the quality of the Timbers is utterly inexplicable. Speaking of p- missing people, no Fernando Adi in the 18 for the LA game or the Montreal game. Liam Ridgewell also not in the 18 for either of those games. Yes. So let's talk about Adi first because somebody, I can't remember who, I think it was Jamie Goldberg, asked about Adi specifically on Saturday night. Uh, Brad says, in Gio's post-game presser, it sounded like Adi is suspended. Thoughts? Is discipline more of an issue with the team this year? I don't, Jamie, I don't understand this question at all because I was in that press conference. I did not hear the word suspended. I think that the the implication coming out of what Gio said in terms of saying that this is something that needs to stay between a player and a coach um, I think I think it's unfair to assume suspension or, okay. or anything like that. And, but I think I can see where fans might get that term just on the way Gio phrased it. What I do think the implication was based on Gio's phrasing is I, I think going into um, me asking that question, I think the assumption by most people was, oh, Artie's out of the lineup. He must be on his way out. Um, he, this must be because he's about to get transferred and, and they're just taking him out of the lineup. He might not even be here or something like that. He, he's clearly here. He was in training. Um, but I, I think the way Gio phrased it, it does make it sound like maybe this is a disagreement or a discipline issue or, or something that potentially mirrors what happened with Ridgewell early in the season. We don't know exactly what that is, and I think suspension it would be way too harsh of a word because we really don't know what it means when there's some sort of disagreement behind the scenes and how small or big or that could potentially be. Um, in terms of discipline this season, I think – yeah, there has been Ridgewell's. There's been times when Ridgewell hasn't been in the lineup in the 18 for a few games um, when it was clear there was something going on behind the scenes. I think that similarly with maybe Espria um, and now with Audi. Um, so I guess there's a lot of situations where we're seeing kind of players that play a significant role facing these situations. I don't think discipline is more of an issue this year. I think it's just been interesting that it feels like anyone on the team, if they don't have the right mentality, if they're not putting in the work of training, if something else is going on that we don't know about, it doesn't matter who they are. They could be Diego Valeri. They're not Diego Valeri at this moment, but it could be anyone on the team. And they're subject to potentially um, facing discipline or being left off the 18 if Gio doesn't feel like it, it's appropriate, in his opinion, based on whatever's been going on to have them in the 18. And, and so I just think it's becoming more public this year because we've seen this around, you know, Audi and Ridgewell, two very significant players. Yeah, even there, though, because I, I know you didn't mean it this way, but you coupled facing deep discipline with being out of the 18. Yeah. And I know that you know those are, like, two very different things. Yeah. Um, kind of like you wanted to say right there, it's not like Audi or Ridgewell have faced discipline. They've just been out of the 18 for reasons that I think you kind of highlighted are becoming more mysterious than they've been in years past. There's more things going into these decisions than we saw during the Caleb Porter. We, at least we didn't see these stories come out very often during the Caleb Porter. I think there was one time where you really had to keep pursuing Caleb about somebody's exclusion, whereas now this has happened a couple of times in a four-month span. But I think it is important because people are being really um, almost pedantic about this to separate discipline from just coaches' decisions. And... I think Gio was pretty clear in Saturday's press conference that it was a difference of opinion between him and Fernando Adi. 
that doesn't mean suspension. That just means two adults have a different opinion about where he should be on the team or maybe how Gio wanted to use him. Gio didn't elaborate, so I feel like I'm speculating here already. But that's not suspension. So I guess I... And I, I will be honest with you, it's based a lot on how you and Chris talked about Liam Ridgewell earlier this year. I want to kind of put some perspective to this because it's also clear from like what you just said that there is some more perspective on what happened with Ridgewell earlier this year. We now know that while there were some questions there, we now see this is kind of a pattern of how things go. So I think it's kind of our job to know to let people know that this isn't about discipline. This isn't about suspension. This is just how Geo conducts his business, basically. So... Maybe we'll just have to go through this a couple more times to get used to it. But I, I don't think this is a suspension discipline issue at all. This is purely a coach's decision. And we all, at least I will be, continuing to follow up on Audi and Ridgewell and their absence. Obviously, the answers might be similar. But mm-hmm. um, obviously, these are going to continue to be talking points as long as they're not in the lineup. Jamie and I have gone a little bit long on all the different things that have happened over the last seven days, we haven't gotten to this coming game this Saturday at 8 o'clock. Note, 8 o'clock people, the time change has happened. Houston is going to be at Providence Park. First time that uh, we've seen Houston in a non-preseason game since uh, last year's playoffs. I don't know. I don't get the feeling there's a lot of lingering antipathy toward the Dynamo just because the lingering feeling is that injuries undid the Timbers last year, not necessarily Houston. Yeah, it didn't feel like a growing rivalry there or anything like that. It it really just felt like the Timbers lost pretty much all their starters right around that. Yeah. um, Right around that game. I I think the big thing for me coming this game is less about Houston and more about we were talking about the compacted schedule um, and how that may have impacted the Montreal game. So for me, now that the Timbers have a full week, they need to prove that with a full week of practice, with the time to be able to, you know, do everything they need to do to prepare for this game, they can roll out the right game plan and get a result at home and get a win. They play the next three games at home. This is a big opportunity to potentially get nine points out of that. And I, I think the Timbers, after kind of, you know, a bit of a disappointing week, I think that draw in the MLS game at LAFC was, we were looking at that very positively, but you never want to lose a game, especially in a tournament you get bounced from. And then the Montreal game, um, we talked about the ups and downs there. So kind of rebounding from that week, they have the opportunity now to prove that now on rest with the lineup we want, with the formation we want, with the system we want, we can get the job done at home. I'm going to uh, pepper Jamie here with some lightning uh, round questions here. I'm not going to answer them because in the lead up to the show as we were going through these, we found that I had a very bad attitude <laughs> towards things. So we're going to spare everybody my car- caustic, sarcastic, um, actually very dumb thoughts on some of the, some of these questions because they are all pretty good questions. Uh, one is from this guy, Riffer. Uh, Riffer asks, <laughs> at Stanford, Foster Langsdorf never really met the eye test but scored plus or minus a billion goals. Is that pattern more or less holding true at T2? Should he be in greater consideration for first team minutes? Uh, to see if that will be the case in MLS. Well, I might specifically make you answer this question okay. because Riffer is, uh, you know, Riff, Riffer is just a cool, such a cool name. We gotta, <laughs> gotta give us a, him the best response. But just, I mean, just for my uh, thoughts first. I mean, I think one of the interesting things we're gonna see, um, and this will feed into one of the other questions we have, is kind of what, how the depth chart sort of is going to shake out as we continue moving forward in terms of the forward situation. Obviously, there's questions around Audi, but it, in terms of Jeremy Abobasi and, and Foster Langstorff, I think. Langsdorf has done really well to, to kind of prove himself at the professional level coming in his first year. And it, it is a little bit of a question 
obviously we saw Boba C in the 18. He's clearly at the moment, at least, um, number three in that depth chart. But I think that is something that could change. And so I don't know if we're going to be seeing him get any first team minutes uh, anytime soon, but it'll be interesting to see if we, if at some point we see sort of a switch. And so if Audie um, isn't in the 18 <laughs> or on the roster for whatever reason, um, whether we start seeing Langsdorf getting that spot in the 18. Um, so since I'm being asked to answer this question, I got thrown off by this question by the premise that he hasn't really met the eye test because I don't know what the eye test is looking for with Foster because the guy is a hard worker. He's physically strong. He's somebody that is relentless. I mean, I don't know what we're looking for as far as the eye test is concerned with him. I also think that he has done some things that pass the eye test. The goal that he set up on Sunday against Las Vegas was pretty much him making a great run, cutting the ball across great for Jack Barnby, who finished just basically a sitter. So I'm not really sure about what we're expecting from Foster Langsdorf, but to build off of what you were just saying, I would be surprised if he sees a lot of first-team minutes coming anytime soon. I would be surprised if anybody thought that he should see first-team minutes coming anytime soon. The team, the first team is a successful unit right now, doing great in MLS. I don't think there's a need to carve out minutes for anybody at T2. I would think that the people that are in t- at T2 right now and excelling, Foster, Marvin Loria, um, Eric Williamson has had some good games, Renzo Zambrano has been really good of late, they're going to be building a resume to take into Arizona next year and try to claim the last spots on the first team. Let's go to the next question here. I'm going to actually skip to Colin. Colin is picking up on somebody that you just brought up. He says, why hasn't Abobasi seen minutes like he did last year? What are the chances that we never see him earn first team minutes again? I think that, I mean, it's clear that he's been the number three striker this year, whereas last year he was falling into that number two role a lot. Um, with Sammy Armenteros coming in, He's clearly immediately come in and been, from day one, ahead of Ibobasi in the depth chart because he's a better player at this point in his career. Um, And he has now moved into really the number one striker role. Uh, I think that if if the Timbers ultimately move Audi in the transfer window, which we'll talk a little bit more about and we have been talking about, obviously, I think, yeah, Ibobasi will see minutes this year. I think that is sort of what... the the big question because then I think he moves into the number two strike role he's on the bench and when you're on the bench I think you're likely to see some minutes here and there uh that said yeah I I think if that doesn't happen if Audi comes back into the 18 and it continues continues to be Armenteros and Audi a sort of fighting for that role most of the time the Timbers going with only one striker I do think it's possible that he may never see first team minutes because I do think at the end of the season the Timbers might make a decision about round of Boba C and that could have to do with how Langsdorf's doing as well, getting back to that point, True. on whether they actually feel like they want to bring him back because he's potentially going to be part of the system in the long term. Flat cap, flat cap goalkeeper asks, what is the percentage chance that each of these players leaves the Timbers this summer? Adi, Ridgewell, Vitas, Guzman. I am... I. I definitely those are the players for the most part that I, I've been talking about. Um, I, we haven't really talked about Ridgewell and I, I stand with that. I, I think his just doesn't have a lot of value right now. He's uh, injury prone uh, contracts up at the end of the year. hasn't been playing much. I think he's on this team pretty much. Till the end of yeah. The year. You're having to explain this one a lot. Yeah. It seems like I, I, I think that anything could happen. So I'll go to 5% chance, but I, I expect Ridgewell to be on this roster to the end of the season. And that'll be that. Um, I think I'm going to put Vitas and Guzman at uh, 40%. 
I, I, I don't know uh, what the Timbers are looking into, but I do think those are both players they would consider if a deal presents itself. Um, and I'm going to put Audie at 50% mm-hmm. just because there has been questions around D18 and I, there has been questions around Merritt Paulson saying the Timbers could be on the verge of selling a big-name player. I, I think a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to assume that might be Audie, um, but the deal still would have to come through and present itself. So I'm going to give 50-50 on that one. I'm going to put 0% for all four players because we know that once a timber, always a timber. And they're going to be, if not on the field, at least in our hearts oh, forever. that's so cute. From that sentiment, let's uh, move forward. We're going to have less Thorns talk this week because they are on a break. They only had one game last week. So we're going to get to them in a minute. But first, the Chris Riffer Memorial Hot Take <laughs> Interlude. Jamie, you're up. I am just going to... I'm trying to make this a little more hot takey, but I was so disappointed this week watching streams for the Thorns at Sky Blue game and the U.S. Open Cup game at LAFC. I was really surprised by how terrible the stream was at LAFC because I, I think overall they've done pretty well uh, at, at, at most things in terms of being an expansion team this year. Um, and I think that professional teams should face fines or, or some sort of consequences when they aren't able to have streams at a certain professional level. Obviously, if you run into some sort of technical difficulty on the day of the game that you just couldn't get around, that anyone would have an issue with, that's one thing. But when you're setting up your stream to fail, which in both (laughs) these cases they did, and there are fixes to it, clearly. Like an uh, umbrella. (laughs) Yeah, it's clearly. So in case anyone didn't watch these games, the Sky Blue game, it it was raining uh, in New Jersey, and... The camera was not set up to handle the rain, so you're basically so watching, watching it as if you were like putting your computer in a shower and just trying to yeah. <laughs> watch the stream. It's like you put your television on the other side of your car windshield during yes, the storm. Exactly. And then the LAFC stream, I think they just used their stadium feed, uh, the yeah. one on their big board, which is a ridiculous thing to do if you're going to stream a game <laughs> because there was action happening. You could hear the announcer saying it. And yet they were showing some sort of replay from before, or for some reason showing LAFC. They were showing like the sponsorship from their again. goals and yes. stuff. Yes. Uh-huh. So yeah, I, I think that it's a bad look for both leagues. And when this when this happens, I, I think in a professional league, fans should be able to expect a certain level of professionalism with the streams, um, and that just helps promote, I think, the quality of the league and makes people want to watch. So I think there should be some sort of consequences because I've seen too many streams since I've been covering soccer that just have been totally unprofessional, just not up to the level they should be. And there needs to be some incentive for teams to get it right. And so at this point, um, I'm sick of it. I want, I want there to be some fines handed out because we're going to analyze the Sky Blue FC game in, in a minute. We analyzed the U.S. Open Cup game. But in my view of both these games, it is not what I would have liked it to be. I feel like I definitely missed something um, <laughs> because I was either missing the action in the U.S. Open Cup game or just not being able to clearly see the players on the field in the Sky Blue game. Yeah, I think there is some language that USSF has in its rules for a club and their licensing that they are supposed to be able to do this. And I'm trying to remember this, and I'm pretty sure I'm getting confused or confounded, but it's very vague language, just basically saying your team is expected to be able to do this, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of implying, like you said, hey, if, it, if something happens on the day of the game, if like a lightning bolt hits a transistor outside the stadium, we're not going to come down on you. But the basic stuff you should be will, able to do, and obviously the basics weren't met, at least in the sky blue situation this weekend, and it's open to interpretation where their <laughs> LAFC did. And there, the worst this weekend happened in the NWSL, where 
they had a game that because of weather on Saturday had to be rescheduled for Sunday. And on Sunday, the personnel to stream the game on Go90 and NWSL.com had essentially gone home. And so they couldn't stream the game. And in the minutes before the game, they had to tweet out, sorry, we cannot basically put up a professional quality stream. Half the people respond to that. So that's okay. We're not used to professional quality streams. It's the NWSL. But they didn't even try. So this was a great quote unquote weekend for streaming around the league so I'm with you on this one unfortunately I don't think it's a very hot take I think it's a pretty cold take but it's a true one nonetheless Um, my hot take is actually just a recycled take from a couple of months ago and it's regarding soccer banter I think I said this in the wake of the banter that went on around the Seattle 100 game with the whole Portland Maine thing getting involved and we saw basically both sides Timbers and Sounders fans saying we're not owned you're owned you're definitely owned and like Sounders fans not really getting that the organization's joke had blown up in their face and they were still like, oh, this is still so great, or at least were in some level of denial over it. I just think that Soccer Banner is still counterproductive. I thought we saw the ugly side of it this week. In the wake of Wednesday's game between LAFC and Portland, we have a couple of pretty serious issues come up. And the banter that had started from us, basically, uh, as a Timbers organization kind of doing the L thing on Twitter with the raising of the hat after LAFC had lost here earlier this year, created an animosity that spilled off into social media and got really ugly afterwards between the ugly nature of Adama Diamande's accusation and then the accusations that basically started saying the Timbers are crying that they're because they're protesting this game. Like These are all sentiments that are uncalled for in these situations, in my opinion. But in the context of soccer banter, they make total sense because this is just how soccer people talk to each other, right? No, you don't have to talk to each other this way. You don't have to put yourselves in situations where this banter has to keep going back and forth. You can just move on with your life and not feel like you have to get into another person's face or timeline or feed just because a team protests a game or somebody makes a pretty serious accusation on their Instagram account. These don't have to be subjects for banter. And I think ultimately the culture of banter around soccer leads to these situations where it is inevitable that it's going to go too far. So I think people should enjoy their games. They should enjoy each other's company. They should enjoy all the awesome things athletes do on the field and not feel the need to banter the hell out of everybody else. I think you just have a skewed perspective on what professional sports are like. (laughs) Fair enough. Why don't we get back to the actual professional sports since I clearly don't get the culture around (laughs) the professional sports. And let's talk about what happened in New Jersey this weekend. The Thorns missing four of their most prominent starters and then having a fifth injured in the first half in their game against Sky Blue. Scored twice in the first seven minutes. Conceded one before halftime but ended up holding on for a two-to-one victory. It's their third win in a row. They are now tied for third place in the NWSL, one point behind second place, Seattle Reign. And Jamie, it wasn't the most impressive performance, but I guess this, this is the type of stuff that happens when you finally turned a corner. Yeah, um, maybe. Uh, or, or you're playing the worst team in the league. Like, or you're playing we'll, the worst team we'll in the league. We'll get to our opinions of that in one second. I mean, am I predicted a Thorns 1, Sky Blue uh, zero uh, result. I think that's fairly close. I think that's the, pretty close. Yeah. What was going on? I did not predict this would be a decisive win for the Thorns. Uh, you said that Andresinia would get her first NWSL assist. Well, at least her first one with. I know I wrote that down here like that, but it's her first. It would be her first one with the Thorns. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So. So I'm going to give myself a zero. 
because Andres Senior played fine, but the two goals she wasn't really a part of. They happened early. She didn't generate a lot of chances. If she generated a bunch of chances and didn't get an assist, I'd give myself four or five points. I want to give myself less than four or five points. I'm going to give myself zero. You had a one to nothing score. In favor of the Thorns, you were clearly seeing it was going to be a tight game. You had said last week that you didn't quite trust the team without the number of starters they would be missing. I think I've got to give you 9.1 points. All right. (laughs) Jamie's disappointment there isn't the fact that she got 9.1 points. It's the fact that she had no basis with which to push back with (laughs) them. She's looking for some reason to go, that's wrong. And now she's like, ugh, okay, I guess we can move on. Reviewing the actual game, though. about the best start you can hope for, aided greatly by Sky Blue themselves and Caroline Casey's great pass to Anna Cernogosevich. But even before that, Haley Rosso with her first goal of the year, a goal that's up for goal of the week in the NWSL, just the absolute dream start you could hope for from Portland. Yeah, and I, I think Rosso was a part of both those goals. You know, she kind of creates, uh, puts Casey under pressure that creates her making that bad pass that leads to Cernogosevich's goal um I, I i think that it was a great start from the thorns it was um against a team like sky blue it just felt like this is a decisive start and, and game that you're going to need to show that you've really turned a corner as a team and you can you know even deal with absences and, and can handle a team that hasn't won a game in the NWSL this year that you're the better team and, and can put this game to rest um so yeah great start <laughs> Pretty downhill from there. Um, they, they managed to get the win, but my confidence of whether they've turned a corner, whether um, everything has, uh, whether this is something they're going to continue to build on, um, yeah, I, I don't feel quite as optimistic at the end of that game as I felt after after the first yeah. ten minutes. I felt the same way after the game. About five minutes after that, I was just like, "This game doesn't matter at all." They're missing four other starters. Kath Reynolds went down in the middle of the first half. To the extent I want to judge the 11 players that were on the field, like none of those judgments carry forward into the next week. So you absolutely wanted that game to be easier. And Mark Parsons after the game was saying, look, these are the games that happen in this league. This league is tough even when you're going up against the worst teams in the league. They all have talented players. You, every once in a while, you're going to be missing a bunch of starters, and you're going to end up in a rainstorm. You're going to end up on the road, and you've got to find a way to win no matter what. And it's like, okay, that's all uh, That's all kind of objectively true. That being said, this is the worst team in the league. It's the second time in a row that you've kept them in the game like this. The second time in a row by the end of the game that you were clearly the second best team. And yet, it, none of it matters. <laughs> because the next time they play, the, the Thorns are going to be in North Carolina. They're going to have their full team. And nothing from the Sky Blue result is going to be pertinent. So it's almost frustrating how irrelevant how few lessons there were to learn from a game that there should be a lot of lessons from, but there just aren't. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree, but it, it is, I, I think it, it, you do still, they, they have good players still on the field. Obviously, they're missing those stars, but they've been missing players all year. We don't know if it's going to be 100% the rest of the way they're going to have their top team. And I would, I still take away from this game that this team hasn't figured out how to deal with, with adversity in the way you'd want them to yet this year. They've dealt with a lot of it, but they're still – that should have been easier. I think even with the team they have, they should have made it easier, especially with that kind of start. You want the mentality to be that you're going to hold that. And it was a very – it's shifted. Didn't, didn't they hold it? They did, ultimately. But they gave – I mean – Because I hear what you're saying, post, but they still won the game. Yeah, but the posts help. I mean, it's not that they held it because they had shut down defensive performance after that and just no. got it done or at any point in the game – 
as Sky Blue was pressuring, finally turned on a switch and said, okay, we're going to find a way to win this game. They have a lot of luck, and Sky Blue just not well, being I mean, able to... Well, I don't to... know about luck. I mean, <laughs> Sky Blue hit the post twice. Those are just close misses. Like, hitting a post isn't unlucky. You hit a post. There were other times that Sky Blue created great chances, and then Britt Eckstrom had to have a great save, and then um, Ellie Carpenter right after that had to have a block. I mean, look, Sky Blue vastly outplayed yeah. the Thorns, but the Thorns... Oh, I mean, the Thorns over those last 10 minutes, at least. They vastly outplayed them. But the Thorns did enough to put themselves up by a goal, and they essentially toughed out a game and found a way not to concede. And so, um, yeah, it was ugly, but I I don't know that you can say that they didn't, you know, they didn't come through or they didn't hold out. No, I they mean, they got, they got the win. And ultimately, that's very important because we were talking about how important this result was going to be because how close the playoff race is. Now suddenly they're in a tie for third. I think if the season ended today, they, they'd be in third. I think they have the tiebreaker there, so they wouldn't even have to go to North Carolina. Not that that matters because we still have a few games left in the season. Um, but yes, they needed these points because they're going to play a lot of teams in the playoff race with them, and they got them. So ultimately, yes, that's good. Uh, and ultimately, they were missing their starters. I just feel that the mentality could, definitely could have been better, even with the group uh, that was on the field. Okay. Uh, let's go on. Let's talk about, you know, just where do you think the Thorns stand at this point? Three wins in a row. They definitely have a home playoff game within reach at this point. Uh, they need to be within reach of the rain come the last game of the season when the rain come back here for the second time. Uh, they need to be able to jump them in that last game, and they're in a position right now to be able to do that. So, Do you think right now the Thorns, as far as, I don't even want to say their level of play, because obviously Saturday's level of play wasn't good, but the three-game winning streak, what we saw from them when they have all their starters together, do you think that this is a team that can get that home playoff game in the semifinals? I I think, I I mean, it's in reach. I I mean, I think it's going to be difficult them going to North Carolina. That's their next game. Uh, They obviously have the weekend off. They'll play that game on August 5th. Um, I, I think that's going to be tough because North Carolina has been tough for everyone. Um, but outside of that, they do have the, the opportunity to play Orlando. They, they do have the opportunity to play the teams around them, and they have the opportunity to get these wins. So they're in the perfect position to do this. If they play like they did against Utah and Houston, they are going to face better, better teams. But with their, whole, with their starting lineup there, if they can replicate those performances and build off that, then yeah, it, it is within reach. And, and the Thorns have historically shown that they can do when, when they have these sort of talent challenges that they can do it. I, I mean, that's why they won the NWSL Shield in 16 and, and why they got a home playoff game last year. Um, because at the end of the year, they won five of their last six and just shot up the standings to get where they wanted to. So it's, it's a lot of it's in their control because they play a lot of these teams around them. And if they can uh, put the sky blue result aside, because as you said, a lot of their players weren't there. Um, and, and kind of build off the games, the last two games when they had more consistency in the lineup, they, they can. Um, but it, it's going to be a tough ending of the season. The, they're going to have to get a lot right. Thorns don't play again until two Sundays from now when they'll be at North Carolina, the last meeting of the year between those two teams. Thorns having lost both previous meetings this year against the Courage. In the interim, Tournament of Nations is going on. That's where Adriana Franch is. That's where Lindsay Horan is, Tobin Heath is, Emily Sonnet is. We have a question, or we don't have a question. We've asked a question of ourselves. Will Adriana Franch actually play in these games? She has been called up to the national team before. She has yet to get a cap before. Will she actually make an appearance in these th- one of these three games that the U.S. is going to be playing over the next week plus? 
I'm going to give it 35%. 35% is a good <laughs> chance. I mean, that's like if you're a 350 hitter going to the plate, you're not surprised if you get a hit. I, I, Jill Ellis has just been, you know, calling her up. Um, the, she's obviously had some injuries. There's things that have happened. But she's gotten opportunities a few times in camp. I, I feel like if Jill Ellis wants to keep looking at her, she also needs to give her some game minutes to kind of see what she looks like in the group in, in a more serious setting. And, and so I, maybe I'm just really hopeful that she's finally going to get that opportunity. But I think that as we're heading into next year and talking about the World Cup, if France is even potentially on the radar, they need to give her some minutes somewhere. Yeah, I think that this is going to be Adriana France's best chance to get minutes. I think that the year-plus couple of years now that Jill Ellis has invested in Chicago's Alyssa Nair as the number one goalkeeper has only magnified questions that were pre-existing. In other words... Jill Ellis now needs to take inventory of her other goalkeeper options, which is why I think Jane Campbell has seen some time. Ashlyn Harris continues to be in the picture, although Ashlyn Harris might continue to be in the picture just because she's under contract to U.S. soccer. But those circumstances tell me that Adriana Fanch has as much of a chance now to get one of these games, to insert herself into the picture, to actually compete for a real spot in these super important teams that are coming up over the next year uh, as she has ever had in her career. Let's go to some listener questions. LJ Pint, how does pregnancy impact contracts in the NWSL? Do they get paid while away? Are their contracts extended? Example, Dagny Brynjard starter. So I want to thank LJ Pint for persisting with this question. This has been something that LJ has asked a couple of times before, and obviously we haven't, asked, we haven't answered it to a greater ex- enough extent. Um, pregnancy, look, your contracts just have a time. Um, you're paid just like uh, any other player who is under contract while you're pregnant. Uh, your contract expires just like it does any other contract. Um, I, I don't know. Am I, am I explaining yeah, that enough? I, I think that I think a lot of questions for Thorns fans is Dagny going to come back, and I don't think she's under contract. I, I, so that's if that's the underlying question. I, I think oh, let's okay. make that clear. Uh, she could come back, but I think it would have to be under a new contract. So we really don't know what hap- what happens. And, and no, it's not like pregnancy doesn't count as you're on your contract. I think, I guess, it's almost more similar if you had an injury and we're, not, we're out. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the confusion is because of the way that U.S. national team players have negotiated their CBA with the Federation, there are specific clauses in there regarding how pregnancy is treated. In other words, you can't be dumped out of the player pool because of pregnancy. You have to come back from pregnancy at the same place you were in the player pool before. That obviously is a unique situation to U.S. soccer. doesn't exist the same way in the NWSL. NWSL has contracts. Um you're contracted to your team. If you're pregnant at the time your contract expires, your contract still expires, and you need to negotiate a new one, as is the case with Dagny Brynjard starter right now. Um, next question is from Janine. Janine, how can we call the NWSL stable when they have no commissioner, lousy refs, bad pay, and teams in such bad shape that they don't have locker room showers or bathrooms? Uh, I think Janine's made up her mind. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. Like, if you want to, if you want to call the NWSL an unstable league, there's a lot of there are a lot of reasons to call it unstable. If you want to call it a stable league, you're going to find reasons to call it stable. I don't. I, I my issue, I guess, is with the term stability because I do think it's a stable league in that I don't think it's in danger of folding. It's a relatively a stable league at, at the moment. I don't think we expect the NWSL to suddenly fold next month or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, 
weather specific teams and when you're talking about the locker room showers and, and sort of that sort of situation i assuming that the reference is towards sky blue and oh the, god let's hope so it's, uh, not, it's not another team <laughs> um the information that came out on uh, equalizer about the conditions there that are absolutely subpar um whether they fold and whether they get absorbed into a new team that's a definitely a real question and what happens with them moving forward in the offseason um that that's a real question but the league as a whole i think there are definitely ways the league needs to get better more professional um fairer to its players but in terms of stability i think because u.s soccer at the moment is still supporting the league I, because there are multiple teams that are owned by uh, either MLS teams or, or lower division um, men's sides right now that are with under the umbrella uh, of stable organizations, I don't see the league as in danger of folding, and therefore I would call it stable. Stable with clearly a lot of issues that many young leagues face, but obviously they need to do better. And there are a lot of issues in the NWSL that still need to be addressed um, to make it the professional caliber level league that the players that are playing in it deserve. But for my feeling, stability, if that's the word you're looking at, I I do consider this a relatively stable league. I I don't expect them to fold anytime soon. So the list of Janine's issues, no commissioner. In my opinion, this is far less of an issue than people think it is. I actually don't think people know what the NWSL commissioner is supposed to do on a minute-to-minute basis. So that possibly leads to the problem that people like me haven't explained what a commissioner should be doing because the tasks of commissioner are being done right now. It's not like that's just an empty void of things that aren't happening. Lousy refs, no question about that. Bad pay, I disagree. The pay isn't where anybody wants it to be, but to say that it's still bad, I mean, these players are able to, during the time they're under contract for the six months they are with a team, have a living wage, a low-end living wage. And then a lot of these players are able to have, because they aren't under contract for a full year, opportunities to pursue other pay. It's not ideal, but it's obviously making progress. I wouldn't call it bad. Uh, Teams in such bad shape that they don't have locker rooms, showers, or bathrooms rooms i guess the thing i disagree with there is that you put that in the plural and i don't think that we should judge the entire league by the state of sky blue and i think sky blue um we're starting to discover that they might not be um they might not be in a place that they want to be and they might not be in a place that other owners in league want to be so like i said this all just depends on how you look at it i think that for the most part the nwsl has undeniably made progress over these five plus years and so i tend to look at that and pretty much want that progress to keep going forward. Uh, Unless there's anything else that you want to add on that, why don't we get to our very short prediction segment this week because we only have one game to predict. It's the Houston game, 8 o'clock on Saturday here at Providence Park. Jamie, what is the final score going to be? I feel a lot more confident uh, about this game because, um, although I guess I had a lot of confidence last week, but I feel confident about this game because the Timbers have more time to rest and regroup and are going to be able to play uh, their best lineup and come up with a game plan they think is going to work for this game. So I'm going to predict the Timbers beat Houston uh, two to one. And my side bet is lame, but basically I wanted to make a possession based side bet because the Timbers haven't held very much possession this year. And I think on Saturday they will hold possession, but then you end up getting into like trying to predict a number and it becomes boring because it's like, okay, is 59 too high is 61 too high. And it just makes for kind of bad podcast because essentially you're just talking about a ratio at this point. So I'm going to say the Timbers hold at least 58% possession because it's a relatively high number. It's not an outlandish number. And I just wanted to get this prediction done. <laughs> All right. Um, fantasy update. Um, 
now that we have the correct uh, fantasy information in front of us and the fantasy information, sorry, last week we didn't have it. How's, um, how's Beer City FC Beer doing? City FC is in first place. Yes. So uh, you ruined the surprise. But uh, <laughs> No, I, I just, my fantasy fantasy team has Beer City FC. So that's, that's all I care about. <laughs> so fake plastic teams in third with uh, 2,184 points. Uh, Geostorm FC is in second with 20... 20- 197 points and beer city fc on top again uh with uh 2290 points um still working to see what kind of swag or or sort of meaningless but fun um prizes we can get for the winners um at the end of the season uh, on this so um stay tuned on that i'm hoping to have something um for fantasy winners at the end of the season so one last thing before we go i just want to Throw it out there for everyone. Uh, Richard and I will be hosting a live show with John Strong from Fox Sports. Uh, obviously, John uh, just came back from the World Cup, was Fox Sports' lead announcer uh, for the 2018 World Cup in Russia. So I'm really excited to hear some stories from him. We're going to be hosting a live podcast on next Tuesday. That's July 31st at 7 p.m. at Civic Tap Room to ask him some questions, hopefully get some uh, audience Q&A as well, and we'll be posting that online uh, as well, but if you can make it out there live, it would be great to have yeah. to have a ton of people in the audience. Get yeah, some come questions. ask some questions for us, yeah. or else you're going to have to deal with our terrible, overly <laughs> exactly. serious questions about this. You're not going to get to ask John anything about his time in the North End, growing up in Portland, Lake Oswego's own, going to Russia. We're not going to ask anything about that. We're going to ask industry questions <laughs> about Fox soccer and licensing deals and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm come, not sure about that. <laughs> come to Civic Tap Room and ask some real questions, the ones we're not going to ask of John Strong. Yeah, and we'll, uh, this will be kind of a special edition of the pod. Uh, we'll obviously be talking about all the games, uh, really the Timbers game, and previewing um, the games coming up as well uh, in a podcast next week. But hopefully we'll see some of you at Civic Tap Room. All right, that is our show. Uh, We're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Stumptown Footy, uh, Timbers.com, and Oregon Live. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.